rogues, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. I really am a mean and despicable creature at heart. I really am a mean and despicable creature at heart, you know. Good afternoon. This is True Crime Uncensored from the gleaming streamlined studios of Outlaw Radio. Produced with great umbrage by Magic Matt Allen. I'm Mark <coughs> Backchecker Boyer. Uh, my, uh, the, the hosts of the show are a no-show, which is why I call Burrow an imaginary host. Welcome to the show. We're here with Steve. Steve Hodel. We're going to be talking today about <coughs> the Black Dahlia murder and some information on who might have caused her, who might have killed her. Welcome, Steve. How you doing? I'm good. Good to be with you. So why don't you why don't you tell us who you are and how you uh, how you started working on this particular case? Well, uh, I'm uh, long. I was LAPD Hollywood homicide for 24 years. Uh, basically, uh, got out of the Navy, joined LAPD at 21, and spent the next 24 years uh, with mostly at Hollywood Homicide. By the way, thank you for your service. Thank you. Uh, 300 uh, murder cases. Uh, basically, my years were... Park I started out with Chief Parker in the old days, so I was from, like, 63 until retiring in 86. And uh, that was when we were seeing, uh, you know, a lot of gang activity and problems. I had two small boys. So shortly after retirement, I moved north and uh, checked out... Uh, Northern California, Oregon, and then got up into Washington State, mm -hmm. and uh, kind of the last stop was Bellingham, Washington. And uh, Matt knows this well. I know Bellingham well. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah, a great, uh, great little town. Not so little anymore, but yeah, great little college town. Uh, put on the map by uh, a serial killer by the name of Ted Bundy so many years ago. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I went up there, uh, moved up there uh, three years after retiring in eighty, moved up there in eighty nine raised my boys and I was uh, 14 years into retirement and doing PI work up there criminal defense work and uh, basically uh, I got this 3 a.m. phone call from uh, my uh, father's wife and uh, she said you know your father's collapsed the paramedics are here and they were in San Francisco in a high-rise downtown uh, San Francisco she says come on down they've just pronounced him dead so I fly down and, and um, basically uh, do all the things you have to do with a father's passing. And uh, he had been uh, relocated. They relocated just uh, in that previous decade from Asia. He'd been over there for 40 years. Uh, Philippines? Uh, well, Manila, Japan, Hong Kong, but based in the Philippines in Manila. And he was, uh, you know, and, and one of the things about this story is you really have to kind of understand his bio, uh, you know, his, his his bio to really get clear on it. He was an amazing individual. There's never, I've never met an individual quite like him. And um, uh, I spent the first third of my book, Black Dahlia Avenger, going into heavy biographics on Dad, just so you can understand it. Mm. He uh, was uh, he was a genius and a surgeon. Yeah, you want me to do a little bio on him? That would be cool. Okay, so born in Los Angeles in 1907. Uh, downtown LA uh, was identified at age eight or nine as a uh, musical prodigy 
played his own piano concerts uh, at the Shrine Auditorium at the age of eight or nine. Uh, also highly uh, gifted intellectually, 186 IQ, one point above Einstein. Incidentally, that skips a generation, but my... my Unfortunately. <laughs> my boys are in good shape, my two sons. Uh, basically uh, graduated from South Pasadena at the age of 14, entered Caltech University, um, had an affair after a year, had an affair with a professor's wife. She got pregnant, uh, big scandal. She goes, breaks up her marriage. She goes back east. He follows her back and says, he's now, what, 15 or 16? And he says, I want to marry you. And she says, George, you're a child yourself. Get out of my life. Go away. He comes back, uh, passes himself off for 21. Well, he's first he's driving cab out of downtown with a, a young law student by the name of Bill Parker, who will eventually become our most famous police chief here in Los Angeles. So they're driving yellow cab out of the Biltmore downtown, and um, he gets a job with the L.A. Record, which was one of the big six newspapers back in the uh, 20s, as a crime reporter. And this is, of course, during Prohibition. He starts riding around with Vice, kicking doors, and uh, reporting these tabloid stories in the newspaper. The judge's wife with the young blonde, that sort of thing. Is this this just a bit beneath his intellect? (laughs) Well, he's a little. He's doing a little of everything. You know, he remember he's only in his teens now, still, and um, so then he decides. to, to basically uh, go to medical school. So he goes to pre-med at Berkeley from 1928 to uh, 32 and goes across the bay to UCSF Medical School, gets his MD. And uh, during this time, he also has a couple affairs with women and uh, has two, two children. He has a son, Duncan, in 1928, has another affair with another woman, has a daughter named Tamar, who will figure prominently in 35. Story. Yeah. He figures prominently in the story later. And uh, he's also double dating with a young man by the name of John Houston, who's a good friend of his, who, w- who will later become the famous film director. They're double dating. And um, anyway, so uh, about two weeks into their double dating, uh, Houston falls in love with uh, the girl that George is dating, Dorothy. They fall in love. They get married. They run off to New York, Greenwich Village. And... Uh, George and the other girl, Emilia, say, I guess it's you and me, babe. Uh, she gets pregnant. They go mo- north, and he goes to medical school. Um, let's see now. So, so basically, uh, he has the two children up in, uh, up in the San Francisco Bay Area. He gets a job with the San Francisco Chronicle as a columnist, mm-hmm. and he's writing columns as he's going to medical school for the newspaper. He then decides he needs a little more freedom, and he splits, and he takes a job as a sole surgeon at a logging camp in uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and uh, does that for about a year as as the sole surgeon, and uh, basically decides to come back to L.A. It's now seven years later, and Dorothy has broken up with Houston after seven years. She hooks back up with George. They get married, and my older brother, Michael, is born in 39, I come along in 41, my younger brother Kelly comes along in 42. He joins the health department, quickly rises to the top, becomes the uh, head uh, VD control officer for the entire county of Los Angeles. An, an, an interesting dichotomy considered his, uh, his sexual proclivity. 
Yes, exactly. V- well, he's the VD czar of uh, all of L.A. County. <laughs> and know? he probably had them all. <laughs> oh, exactly. He, he, he knew who was doing what to whom in the film industry and the, and the police department. And, and, of course, L.A. PD was, and the sheriffs and the DA's office were all very corrupt back then. It was a, a real-life... L.A. Confidential wasn't that far off. No, it was a real-life L.A. Confidential back then. A- absolutely. We're talking in the early 40s and through the 50s. And um, so basically, he's the uh, he's the czar of uh, VD czar, and he has all of these confidential files on who's doing what to whom and everything, all the medical records. And suddenly, uh, well, befitting his position, he buys a a Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. home, and you may be familiar with seeing it. It's the Soden House on Franklin and Normandy. It's a it looks like a Mayan temple. Yeah. Right out of a you know it's right out of a Hollywood set. And has been used as such many times. Many times it has been. It's been a lot of movies. And anyway, that was our home from 1945 to 1950. We were living there, and we were the three little princes running around, and here are all these beautiful people. And, and we're, ha- you know, it was to me it was magic time. I, I loved the Franklin House and the people and, and everything about it. It was great. Then suddenly in 1950, Dad's gone. Well, yeah. a- actually, he's before that in, in the summer of 49. He gets, uh, there's a knock on the door, and it's LAPD, Dr. Hodel, yes, you're under arrest for incest. Now, that would be your stepsister. That would be Tamar, who is now 14 and had come down that summer to live with us. So he's arrested for incest, big, you know, headlines, big Hollywood, head of Hollywood County Health Department arrested for child molestation, incest. He gets Jerry Geisler, who is like the Johnny Cochran of his day, mm-hmm. top top defense attorney. Uh, three-week trial, jury trial, and despite the fact that there are three adults present during the sex acts that witness it and testify, he's acquitted. Comes back in like a 45-minute O.J. verdict. And how, how, how does he manage to pull this off? Well, we will later discover, once we get into some secret files, we will later discover there was a $15,000 payoff. Doesn't sound like much money today, but back then it was big bucks and to the DA's office and stuff. And um, he also uh, got, got a couple of the witnesses to refuse to, t- to recant or refuse their testimony. Ah. So, you know, between them being scared that he'd kill them and uh, uh, the payoff, uh, jury came back not guilty. So he gets off of this. What does he do next? So he splits. He's, he's, he's actually about to be arrested. And uh, he, he splits the country, leaves, disappears. He's in the wind, and he's gone. So let's back up for a moment now. He's about to get arrested. So let's go back to your fa- your your father passing, and you go to the house to to pack up his stuff. What do you find? Okay. Well, do, do we want to talk about the crime at all? Uh, let them know what happened before. Or? Well, let's let's set the picture okay, of so how you got involved, and then we can talk. About all right. The crime. So so I go down. I fly down a few hours. I'm down to San Francisco and do all the things that a son has to do in, when the father passes. And I'm sitting there with June, his wife, who's, who's uh, younger than myself. She's 40 years his junior. But they've been married 30 years. And uh, we're talking about the great man, and uh, she comes out with a little book, a three-by-five-inch photo album right. filled with pictures of my family, my mother, my brothers. And um, I'm going through and looking at them, and I'm saying, uh, you know, I open to a young, reclining, nude woman, semi-nude, and I, I say to 
uh, June, who, who is this? And she says, I don't know, somebody your father knew from a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point, now, for some reason, and to this day I don't know exactly why, but Black Dahlia comes to mind, right. which is a famous unsolved uh, L.A. murder from the 40s, 1947. And to this day I'm not exactly sure why, except maybe there was a film that was done in a movie for TV in 1975 called Who is the Black Dahlia? Right. with Lucy Arnaz and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. And th- it looked just like her, so maybe that was the source, but it just kind of came in and out. I didn't think much of it. So two days later, I'm on the telephone to Tamar in Hawaii, who's you know uh, was the victim of the incest, and we're talking about what a great man he was and a remarkable life. And I was very close to my father. I, I, I loved him very much. And um, we're talking about his most, you know, this remarkable life, which you've heard a little bit about already. And she says to me, well, you know, he was a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about, Tamar? I said, where is this coming from? And, and she says, well, he didn't do it, but he was a suspect in the murder. And I said, well, Tamar and I, you know, we kind of went separate ways. We'd had maybe 30 minutes of conversation in 50 years. So, uh, we're talking on the phone, and she says, yeah. I said, well, who t- where is this coming from? She says, well, the cops that took me to trial back and forth said they believed he was a suspect. He, he had committed the murder. But he says, but, but that's all I know, but I'm sure he didn't do it. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. And, and, um, and b- with my training and background, I said, I can, <laughs> I can prove he didn't do that yeah. in you know, uh, a New York minute. You know, no problem. So... But I don't even know the name of the victim. Now, I'm 15 years into retirement now. And you don't know Elizabeth? Elizabeth. I didn't even know her name. I mean, I remembered it was a famous, you know, and I saw photos. I saw photos at the, uh, through the police academy, you know, they show them and, as you're a rookie and, and stuff. But that was it. I'd never, and uh, so I start looking into it, and I, I discover her name is Elizabeth Short. She's from Medford, Massachusetts. And I start digging into it a little bit and discover that they're absolutely confident that it the killer was a surgeon. It was a skilled, you know, skilled. Too precise. Yeah, too precise. It was actually a, a formal procedure that I would later learn is known as a micorpectomy, which is actually you have to d- go between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. To so, bisect the body. To bisect. That's the only way you can bisect the body without using a saw going through bone. Mm-hmm. So they were absolutely sure it was a doctor that, or a surgeon that did it. I said, well, that, you know, that in itself means nothing. That's just coincidence. So... I start digging into it and looking into the case and, and reviewing it, and by this time I'm divorced and my girlfriend is in L.A. I'm still in Bellingham, and she's sending me up. She's sending me up uh, front page. You know, it was above the fold for 40 days, so it was huge, huge news back then, and all of the six newspapers were vying to, you know, be number one on the scoop. So she sends me this one page, and it's. It's a note from the killer. It turns out the killer was sending in messages. He sent in about a dozen messages to the newspapers, and one of them, they were all disguised, kind of cut-and-paste stuff, you know, that sort of thing. But this one was printed, and it was and it was not disguised handwriting. And it said, turning myself in on <clears throat> Thursday, January 29th, had my fun at the police, signed Black Dahlia Avenger. And I look at the, look at the handwriting, and it, it's my father's handwriting. Oh, my God. And, I mean, you know your parents' handwriting, your listeners know their parents, and I know my father's handwriting. But I still said to myself, no way. 
There's the, what, is he pretending to be the guy? What's going on here? Why would he do that? He, well, yeah, I mean, there's just no way he, you know, yeah, I believe the sex stuff. I, I, I definitely believe that. But as far as a, a killer, no way. So at that point, I said, well, you know what? I can't do an absentee uh, investigation. I'm going to have to relocate back to L.A. and clear this thing up. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I came down, and I spent the next two years digging into the weeds of it all, going through it all, doing uh, dozens of interviews, collecting all the evidence, putting it all together. And the next thing I discover, you know, and I'm just basically following the evidence, but I'm, and I've got these two things working. I've got the professional homicide detective who's had 300 murders under his belt and knows what he's doing, and I got the loving son who says there's no way my father could do this. So I get into it, and what the next thing I discover to my surprise is that it's not just one murder, it's a series of murders, uh, ser- that he was actually a serial killer, and that started in 43, four years before the Dahlia murder, and went all the way to 1950 when he split. So there's about a dozen murders, and uh, all kinds of uh, linkage, uh, handwriting, and, and again, notes, notes handwriting on the bodies in some of them. I mean, it was just amazing. Yeah, artwork on the bodies that he would, he would carve. Well, it wasn't artwork. It was actually printing. He, he wrote an obs- on this one body that occurred, on one victim that was three weeks after the Dahlia. He poses her on a lot like he did the Dahlia, and he writes nude, beats her to death, and he writes F.U. and signs it B.D. for Black Dahlia. And, uh, again, it's my fa- father's handwriting. So... And it's not just me saying the, it's his handwriting. I independently had a blind, uh, had a question document expert review it all, and uh, she didn't know who the crimes were. I removed anything indicating the crimes, and she came back on at least five of the uh, uh, five of the letters, and, and including the body, was written by George Hodell. I gave her 25 of his handwriting samples. Anyway, that was just the beginning of it uh, as far as the evidence coming together. Wait a second here. Uh, uh, Burrow has shown up, unfortunately. Hi, Burrow. Yeah, hi. Uh, this is really bizarre stuff. You talk about the soldiers passionately. What was your relationship like with your father? I mean, you seem very calm about it now. Wasn't it dis- horrifyingly disturbing to even contemplate the possibility? Well, I, there was no question. Initially, I, I knew he, he was incapable of it. So it wasn't really a question. I was setting out to exonerate him. Mm-hmm. to show that he had nothing to do with it. But at the same time, the, the detective in me also has to remain objective and, and follow the evidence. So that's what I did. And my mistake was following the evidence because that led me to a 180-degree opposite conclusion. Emotionally, what was that like for you? Or how is it still like for you? Well, I've been through every possible emotion you can think of. I mean, it's, you know, uh, you hear people that, that have read my books and stuff say, oh, it's a daddy dearest thing couldn't be farther from the truth. I was very, I had tremendous admiration for this man. Now, he wasn't a warm fuzzy. I'll grant you that. He was old school. We went down to the basement. We got our spankings with a razor strap. But that's what they did back in the 40s, you know. And so, and and we were estranged for a long time. I mean, you know, he split in 50, so I'm only nine years old Mm. when he splits. You know, as the fates would have it, I was, I joined the Navy and I was assigned two years in in the Philippines. So we became close then. We'd go out. Actually, I was, you know, I had inherited some of those thirsty. My mother's was an alcoholic, and I inherited some of those thirsty Irish genes. Mm-hmm. So 
we'd go out drinking together and womanizing and stuff. And it was, but it was a great time because this, I mean, this was a remarkable man. Just he kind of had this charisma. Being in his presence was like being in with a pope or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Except the pope didn't kill people that. No, no. For such minimal amounts. <laughs> so you've collected all this evidence at this point. What did you do with it? So I go in secret to the an active head deputy district attorney, a guy by the name of Steve Kay. Well, Steve Kay was probably L.A.'s most greatest uh, prosecutor. He worked with Bugliosi on Manson. Uh, he was co-counsel on Manson, but then he did all the other fa Manson family members himself, by himself. So he was highly respected. He was still on the job, to my amazement. And um, I presented it to him, and I said, you know, take a look at this and see what you think, you know. And he says, okay, well, I'll give you a fair, uh, I'll give you a fair uh, legal opinion. So he reviews it for about three months, all of the evidence, all the witness statements, everything. And he comes back and he says, you know, you're probably right about many of these murders, but he says, I have a very high filing policy. He says, and I would file on Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, if, if your father was still alive, and I would file on the second uh, uh, red lipstick murder where they wrote on the body, on the nude body. He says, those two, I would file and I would win them in a jury trial. I have no problem with it. He says, the others, you're probably right, but it's not enough. So with that, you know, basically, you know, I said, okay, well, I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and tell the story to the world. Okay. And because had he said, no, Steve, you know, it's, it's not case, enough here, yeah. I'd go back to Bellingham and, you know, say, well, you know, that, I guess that's it. As a form of punishment, going back to Bellingham. <laughs> <laughs> no, Burl is quite familiar <laughs> with the location, too. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, I knew, so I knew I had made the case. I mean, you, you know if you've, when you're presenting a case, if, you've, if the evidence is there. Right. And that was, so that was 2003 when the book first came out. And then, of course, you know, it goes, the Dateline did an hour and 48 Hours does an hour on it and all of the court TV and all this stuff. Right. And I there's saw that. I was, uh, I was watching one of those shows. It's the only one I've seen. I don't know which one it was. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, this guy's a police detective. And of all the things to find out. Yeah. I mean, I was was trying to wrap my head or my heart around what kind of emotions you went through in this process. Yeah. And I couldn't quite get a handle on it. I really wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. That whole the internal dialogue. You know, it's been it's been a real killer. Of course, part of it, interestingly enough, when you say you you know, you seem so kinda sound so objective about the whole thing. Well, actually, when you think about it, a homicide detective almost has to do that in every murder he goes out on. You get called in, you go in, and here's a father sitting there, and he's just beaten his little seven-year-old daughter to death. And you give him a cigarette, you get him a cup of coffee, you say, I'm sure there's, you know. And, of course, inside you're, you know, you're, 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 you're raging with anger towards this guy. But at the same time, you, have to, you also want to get a cop out or whatever, and, you know, you have to. So, in a way, you're almost trained to do that in every case, you know. Uh, so, so that I think that was a factor. I mean, I've... I've to net, to you know, to try and sum up, I, I've had tremendous anger. I've had, you know, and r right now I guess I'm at a point where it's just terrible sadness. You know, this man could have cured cancer. He could have, he had so much potential. He could have done anything really great for the world, and and this monster, this Jekyll and Hyde situation, you know, which I always thought was an interesting psychological story, but not real. Well, you know what? I I'm convinced real. it's real, and. and uh, 
the, the uh, Dr. Jekyll, the good part, was weaker, and the, Mr. Hyde was the stronger oh, monster okay. inside and won. And, um, you know, and then we get into it, and I mean, you, you look at all the, I've tried to look at a lot of the triggers as to why, and, you know, you've got all of these, you know, first of all, you got this early rejection as a teenager from the older woman, and you've got a mother who, his mother was remarkable. She was a dentist in 1901. Wow. Paris, France, you know, v brilliant woman, you know, but very controlling, very, uh, he was very much of a little Lord Fauntleroy, if you will, you know. He would come in. My mom would tell me stories like she, he, how much he hated his mother. And I'd say, well, why would he hate his mother? And, and she says, well, he would come in and say, Mom, can I go out and play baseball with the boys? And she would say, no, Georgie, you're a pianist. You'll hurt your hands. You're not a uh, baseball. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of thing, you know. So And uh, he became a misanthrope. Uh, you know, he hated the world. He, he um, I spend, uh, in the later books, there's now six books out and so 2700 pages and the evidence has just kept building and building i mean we've got you know the real kicker which we should probably talk about is is the secret files. and why don't we go there how how did how, how did we find get these secret recordings okay so basically uh I, when the book's about to come out or i i was trying to get meetings with lapd with k and i to do a presentation before the book comes out I want to lay it all out, and I was, you know, convinced that they would be wide open to it. I had a great reputation. I had one of the highest solve rates on the department, you know, and I wasn't some kind of, like, rogue cop out there. So, but they kept saying no, and they kept passing on, you know, every time we were scheduled to meet with them right. before the, they kept canceling. So, finally, the book comes out, and um, and then, the you know, the dateline and stuff and, the, and and all of that. Well, what happened was... Um, Steve Lopez, who's the LA, uh, LA Times columnist, uh, I went to him and I said, look, you know, you might want to want this story. It's pretty interesting. So he looked at it, and, and um, this is like a, 10 days before the book comes out. So he goes to LAPD and says, hey, there's this hotel guy. He says, his dad's a black Dahlia killer, blah, 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 blah. And they say, go away. We don't talk about, you know, unsolved cases. So he goes to Cooley. Who was the head? Who was the DA at the time? Steve Cooley, Odell, blah blah blah. He says, "Well, I'm not spending a dime of taxpayers' money on some, you know, 60-year-old in investigation." But he says, "You know, there's a box in the in the vault in the DA vault that you might be interested in. It's mm. the Black Dahlia." And of course, Lopez says, "Yeah." yeah. <laughs> so they go down. They open the vault. Cooley hands him this box. He takes it upstairs. Opens it up. Out falls a picture of Dr. George Hill Hodell. <laughs> Your father. My father. And, and, and not only that, but he starts getting into it. And here he, he discovers that he was the prime suspect all along back then. And that additionally to that, that they have tape-recorded confessions of him admitting to the crime. Well, why wasn't he prosecuted? Well, that's a good question. So, but, but let me just get into the transcript a little bit. So, uh... You know, he publishes a couple of quick, you know, he's a columnist. He does a quick quick and dirty things. So I I go down to Cooley, and I say, well, can I make copies of all of this? And he says, well, I, I guess I have to let you. I let him. So I caught <laughs> big mistake. He hadn't read it. Cooley hadn't read the transcripts. So I make copies of everything. I spend the next three or four months going through it all and detailing it. Come to find out that LAP, uh, 
the grand jury, the 49 grand jury, said there's something wrong here. None of these crimes are being solved. All of these women are lone women murders, Adalia, corruption. You know, let's take this away from LAPD and let's give it to the DA's office to investigate. So they do exactly that. And Parker says, whoa, wait a minute. He says, I want one of a... I want our men on it too, you know, working with you. I don't, you know, so they they have one DA and one LAPD guy. They pick George Hodel up. They take him down to the to a Hall of Justice and interview him. And while they've got him there, they break into the Franklin House, this Mayan temple of ours that she used to live in. Yeah, and this is now 1940. This is 1950, and uh, they break in. They wire it for sound. They put a microphone in the living room. Not, not, not phone taps, actual microphones, in the living room and in the bedroom. And for the next six weeks, 24-7, 18 detectives sitting around the clock are monitoring live conversations. So the third day into it, and he's talking about, he actually, Dad talks, is talking to another guy, a Baron Haringa, who's this German Baron who's there. And they're talking about it, and you, I'm reading the transcript, and he says... Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they can't prove it now. Uh, my secretary's dead. Well, it turns out he'd been investigated a year and a half earlier for the overdose murder of his secretary. Mm. And um, and he goes on to admit performing abortions. He goes on to, you know, saying that they suck. They uh, found these photos of uh, of me. I thought I'd gotten rid of them all. But the real kicker, and here's the here's here's the why to answer this is a long-winded w- answer to your question. On the third day of the investigation, the, the electronic stakeout, the, uh, I'm reading the transcript, I can't believe it. Baron Haringa and George Hodel go downstairs. An object is heard striking a, an object. A woman screams. More blows. More screams. She goes silent. And I'm reading this, and, I'm, uh, and they're six minutes away at Hollywood Station in the basement, staked out. And I'm saying... Why aren't they out the door over there and doing a rescue? But they didn't. They did nothing. They just, you know, and so I could, uh, you know, all I can figure is that, um, so anyway, it was either a serious felony assault or more likely a murder. Because after the beating, we hear Dad's George say, um, don't leave a trace of anything. So, uh, and then the DA will, a, a little bit later, will start investigating, thinking there's maybe bodies buried in the basement. But anyway, that's a separate report. But anyway, um, so actually what we've got here is a probable murder tape recorded by LAPD and the DA's office, and they did nothing about it. And you kind of have to understand the timing of L.A. back then. Parker is literally weeks away from assuming command. He's about to, and he wants to clean up the department, (laughs) right, take over. So he's literally weeks away and he's and he's I think they had this kind of Machiavellian meeting and said look if this comes out we're not going to be able to take power and, and do what we want to do to clean up Dodge uh, George Hodel is now in the wind he's split the country he's left maybe we can get him maybe we can't if we do get him and bring him back maybe he gets Jerry Geisler again and kicks our butts again or he lays out everything he knows about corruption and, and names names Maybe it's better to just, like, lock this away in the vault for now, and we'll come back to it at a future time. But for now, let's just move ahead. And that's what they did. And so that's, that's the why. I, I see that wow. as the why of it. And, and 
It's not Steve Hodell saying this or theorizing. It's we've got the actual documents and everything. I mean, it's it's right there in black and white. And this is why, of course, today's LAPD doesn't really want to touch it. They, these are our two greatest heroes, Thad Brown. And, and so what they do is they're ordered to, uh, this D.A. Jemison, who's the D.A. lieutenant in charge, is ordered to return everything, the tape recordings, everything to LAPD, give it to them, shut it down, you're off the case, and never say a word about it. And he does that, you know. So in a way, he's got a white hat, but he also he's got a black hat because, you know, he does what he's told, he's ordered. And and to this day, it, it, it you know, had Cooley not turned o- over that box to, you know, we'd still be... So, you know, we'd still be in the dark. Now, when they they do this stuff on TV and they talk about the black doll and all that, they still have this thing of unsolved. With all this that you have and all this incredible amount of evidence and uh, verification, as tragic as it is, uh, why do they still say unsolved? Is it because everybody's gone? They can't arrest anybody? No, it, it it actually it's it's not, uh, and that that that's one of my pet pet uh, peeves is it wasn't unsolved. It was solved, and not only that, we've got the four of the highest ranking officers, uh, law enforcement officers, saying it back then that it was solved. We've got Parker saying we solved the th- these are quotes. We solved the case. It was a doctor in Hollywood. Okay, we got Thad Brown saying we solved the case. It was a doctor who lives on Franklin Avenue in Hollywood. And, of course, uh, we got the undersheriff saying, you know, it's, it was a doctor that was performing abortions. In Hollywood, it'll never come out. And uh, so you've, you've got all of these confirmations back then, individually, separately, saying it was solved. So the truth is it's, not, it's uncleared, okay? So it's solved, but it's uncleared. But LAPD, you know, basically all they can do is say we don't have time to look at it, you know. I don't blame them. <laughs> I worked uh, for the LAPD at the turn of this century, uh, working on their year 2000 problems. Uh-huh. Uh, and by coincidence, got uh, in the middle of the Rampart scandal. Oh, yeah. And interacting with the police officers in charge of the investigation, uh, I, I got a much clearer picture of, uh, of what it is to be a police officer and... Uh, what the disdain is for uh, for investigating their own right exactly there's that blue you know blues blue code oh, yeah. a- a silence and I love LAPD you know I'm not some rogue cop I you know my heroes were Parker and Thad Brown you know there's this one amazing uh, you know of course I'd never had a clue of any of this at any time and let's see so Parker dies in 60 66 right after the Watts riots, okay? And the interim chief is Thad Brown, chief of detectives, becomes the interim chief. So I'm still working uniform at that time at Hollywood, and my watch commander says, hey, go down to the swearing-in ceremony at Parker Center, which was police administration building. It hadn't quite been named Parker Center yet. And, uh, you know, go to his swearing-in ceremony. There was about eight of us. So we go down, go to the ceremony. I'm walking out of the building, and I hear this, hey, officer, and I turn around, and it's a photographer. And he says, would you like your fo- photo taken with a new chief? You know, what's not to like? We step outside. Thad Brown, the brand-new interim chief of police, and I are standing next to each other. He takes a photo. And I don't think anything other than that. That was really cool. 
I, you know, I get it. Three weeks later, I get a, a copy in the mail. I throw it in. Forget about it for 40 years. Well, you know, the truth is Thad Brown knew who I was, who my dad was, and he just couldn't resist the photo op. Uh-huh. So I've got this. I publish it in the book, too. There's this <laughs> photo of us. And it's like he just couldn't resist. Hey, here I am with the son of the <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that cool? Yeah, he was maybe one of, at that time, three or four that knew the truth. So, Man. but it's... <clears throat> so, uh, how many how many books have you... So, basically, really what it is, it's all one ongoing investigation, but I keep updating it. So, it's, it's now six books, and uh, there's BDA 1, BDA 2, BDA 3 and uh, a couple of others but but basically it's uh you know the the evidence is just massive now and it's beyond any reasonable doubt i can tell uh, i think that the uh, the sound of music in the <laughs> background is usually an indication <laughs> that our producer wants us to take a break okay. so that our many fine advertisers <laughs> gotcha. can uh, destroy their identities so we'll take a break for about 60 seconds we'll be right back okay and true crime uncensored take your smoking, drinking, interrupting obsession with you 24 hours a day on any phone or device. And it's all free. Just go to your friendly app store and search for Outlaw Radio. Then look for the red letters on the sign with the bullet holes in it and download it. It's free. Listen free on the road, in your car, at the beach, or in your backyard. It's all free from Outlaw Radio. This is Buddy Twist. Saying goodnight from Hollywood. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus, featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. And now, back to True Crime Uncensored, formerly hosted by Burl Bear and Don Woldman. But Don Woldman is dead. Now, unfortunately, Lapidus is dead. Yes, he is. Man, see how that works? True Crime Unsplintered, Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. And Mark C.G. Boyer. I'm over here in the corner. You know. guy in the corner. Welcome back, everyone. This is True Crime Uncensored. Wolf, wolf. Hey, my mic's on now. With the imaginary Burl Bear. I'm not imaginary. I'm a real person. Yeah, well, I've never <laughs> seen you. I'm a real person, person damn it. Uh, hi, we're, uh, we're back here. <laughs> we're, t- we're talking about the Black Dahlia murders and the man who did it. Now, f- stop and think for a moment. If you found out that your beloved father, whom you so admired, and who you stooped various women with when you were younger, was this murderer who did all sorts of weird, sick stuff to uh, his victims, it might bother you, unless you hated the guy already. But if there was some sort of relationship between the two of you, it could really be harmful to your own self-image, doubt what have I inherited, did that ever cross your mind? Have I inherited some of this proclivity for violence? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, uh, some of the things I certainly inherited. I have, the heavy drinking was a big thing for, with me for many years. I haven't had a drink in 25, but, but still, it was, uh, you know, those genes were there. Uh, and, I, you know, a part of me recognizes that we're all capable of absolute good and absolute bad. You know, that, that evil... It's a matter of, you know, control. It's a matter... I mean, there's, there's a complex. I'm a believer in nurture and nature, both. So uh, the remarkable... I think the thing that 
saved my butt was our mother. Yeah. She was this remarkable, beautiful woman who, uh, you know, she was a screenwriter, but she she was probably smarter than Houston or George Hodel mm. combined. She was just a magnificent, and she instilled in us uh, basic uh, service to others, have no prejudice, make no judgments, be accepting of everybody, and she, you know, and love beauty, love nature, all of these well, things. Well, if you're brought up with that, you're going to manifest that. That's right. But if you're not, you're not. And so one of the good things was that we weren't around Dad, uh, you know, as growing up, you know, that much, you know, other than the first nine years. But, you know, for the next ten, she struggled to keep us all together. She had her own demons with the drinking and stuff. And, uh, but, but, but it was really a, a, you know, and I joined the Navy at 17 as soon as I could, you know, I talk about, there's a couple of chapters in there. I talk about the gypsy years where we bounced all around. I went mm. to three high schools here. I went to Van Nuys High, Santa Monica High, and, and um, Glendale High, <laughs> and then quit my senior year. So, you know, we had it tough, and, and uh, but somehow she managed to keep us all together. And uh, my other brothers both went into community service. My younger brother started most of the... Free- what do your brothers think about all this? Well, my younger brother's, of course, totally on board and uh, didn't have a clue either, you know. And uh, and I did all this in secret. Of course, nobody knew I was working on this investigation. Tamar didn't know. They All they knew was I was writing a book about LAPD. They thought it was about my career or years. They didn't have a clue. So, But he's totally on board. And uh, my older brother, Mike, was a much-loved radio uh, personality here. He was uh, he worked for KPFK mm. and had his own Hour 25, science fiction Hour 25, Mike, Mike Odell's Hour 25. And um, it was for several decades. And he was just, you know, he did all the Heinlein and all the great right. writers. And um, so he was much beloved and um, had, a, had a big... Uh, three-day celebration, but memorial service Mm -hmm. for him. So all three of us wound up getting into community service. Mm -hmm. and and, um, Because you were your mother's his primary influence. That's right, exactly. And, and, uh, you know, Dad always remained aloof and and secretive. I don't blame him. If I was doing what he was doing, I'd be aloof and secretive too. Exactly. And and the interesting thing is that um, LAPD, you know, was absolutely convinced you know, you'll hear there are a number of myths about the Black Dahlia. One myth is that she had a missing week. Not so. I I was able to actually locate 14 victims who actually saw her every day of that supposed missing week. Mm. So that's that's a complete myth. You know, they they have her walking out of the Biltmore on the 9th of January into the fog and never seen until the bodies found 15 uh, on the 15th of January. Total myth. Um, uh, and that was a standalone murder, none before, none after. Mm-hmm. Total myth. LAPD came out in the papers with 11 reasons why they believed at least five of them were connected mm-hmm. back then. A- and then the third myth, of course, was it was never solved. It was solved back then. So how did how did your father choose his victims? Did he was it premeditated? Was it spur of the moment? Did he plan them? Well, what, one of the things we we learned about Elizabeth Short was that they were da- had been dating for quite a long time, and uh, this is actually in the DA reports and their official law enforcement reports that they knew each other and were dating, and basically, uh, you know, what I discover is one of the sh- shocking things in the DA the conclusion of their reports is uh, she's about to find out she that he actually was involved in in a murder of his of his. Uh, 
Actually, there are some Chicago murders he's involved in. But she, he's in China. He goes over to China, and she starts investigating him. Mm. And she goes back to Chicago with these lipstick murders and starts looking into him. And he finds out somehow he, he gets no word that she's investigating these. So he's got to bump her off. So he's got uh, she she's he comes back from his he quits UNRWA United Nations doctoring job in China comes back she's on the run next two months later she's dead but um, I couldn't believe this because these are actually you know these are actually written in the DA report that she's back there investigating this murder and she's actually sleeping with a couple of the reporters to get information on this uh, on this these crimes. And uh, there's another incident where she and Dad are actually identified. Uh, they were standing in line at, as it was, the KNX uh, radio there at, at Gower and Sunset mm-hmm. back in the 40s. They were going to a Jack Carson show, radio show. And uh, they're standing in line, and Dad calls the usher guy down, and he comes down, and he says, he badges him, and he's got a Chicago police badge. And he says, you know, and he says, okay, well, come on up. So he, they cut the line, and they let him in the studio, jump the line. So he's identifying himself, and I actually got the usher, who later became a detective with mm-hmm. Beverly Hills. Really? And he identifies George as being the guy that was in lo- as the Chicago police officer. Wow. So it just goes on and on. We've had, you know, I mean, there's so much new evidence. Uh, Black Dahlia Avenger 3 came out, and, and with that, we've got a three-page letter from a LAPD informant who wrote it back in 49 and actually lays out George as being the killer of that and another Springer, another uh, murder that occurred. And he says, we both knew Springer, the Springer victim, and he killed her. And he's this three-page letter, which he r- writes out in case of any harm comes to his daughters. Mm. And it was never to be released. And a uh, granddaughter, 70 years later, finds it in his private stuff. It was never opened. Ah. She opens it, and here's this letter revealing. You know, I mean, it's just... Amazing. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just doesn't stop. You know, we had a cadaver dog, a Buster, back in 2012, uh, have an opportunity to, uh, and he's trained, to, you know, uh, for human remains, mm-hmm. and, and only human remains. He doesn't hit on a, alert on a dead rat or anything, just human remains. He, go, he, he alerts at the, in the basement of the Souden house at four different locations. Mm. We recover soil samples and have them analyzed, and they're positive for human remains. And LA, I can't get LAPD to do anything. You know, it's like, we haven't got time. We're too busy. Go away. Well, yeah. maybe they are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, I don't they, know. It, it is problematic. Yeah. It's problematic. It reminds me of, of, uh, of back uh, with, in New York with uh, uh, Ken Urell and uh, Michael Dowd, the cocaine cops. All right. Where they knew, I mean, uh, the the guys above them, their superiors, knew that they were dealing coke, robbing coke dealers, all that. But they didn't do anything about it because they didn't want another scandal. Right. They'd rather they kept doing it and people didn't, no scandal, than have the scandal. Right. Image. Image. Yeah, image control. It sounds very similar to that. Yeah, exactly so. Only the, the, see, what really gets my blood up is this. Uh, by not taking the action and doing what they sh- should have done back there, Dad goes on to kill more, more people, and that's where they have the blood on their hands. You know, yeah. is the inaction, and you don't you don't let a serial killer remain out on the street if you can help it. You know, 
if you've got, especially when you've got him identified and, and enough to put him away. Yeah, I'm surprised you know. some uh, vigilante rogue cop didn't go put a bullet in him. So am I, you know, but I, I'm sure that Dad was clever enough to say, well, if anything happens to me, I've got, you know, all of these information that will be coming out. There's a, uh, I don't know if they ever finally got him, there's a serial killer in Portland, Oregon, who uh, never left behind any DNA, never left behind any anything that they could do anything with. He has one woman in a car with him that he's picked up that he's going to, she's yelling out the window at a police car. Yeah. You know, help me, help me, help me, help me. And they're going, you know, oh, just another crazed, you know. Yeah. Let, let it slide. Yeah. Uh, and they even bring him in and question him. And essentially, he, in, a, in a way, he almost confesses because he tells them, you're never going to get what you're looking for. Yeah. You know, you're never going to get any evidence against me. You're never going to get anything that would indicate me. Now, you can read that several ways, but the most honest way to read it is he's saying, you're not going to get me. Right. And as far as I know to this day, they haven't. Yeah. And yet he was still out there. You know, you, you don't stop. You don't say, oh, I no. think I'll uh, no. I'll take a 15-year break. Right. <laughs> that person yeah. is me. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. And the uh, I, one of the later crimes he commits is a, a Dahlia copycat. No, it's not copycat. It's his crime. Uh, in <laughs> I'm copying myself. <laughs> yeah, I'm copying myself. There's a uh, in Manila, where mm. nude body, bisected, posed on a vacant lot. You know, uh, just uh, a mile and a half from his house. You know, and with this, a finger pointing to the entrance. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, you know, my God, you know, this is. His ego must have been of astronomical proportions. Oh, it was. He was a megalomaniac. He he really. Uh, yeah, I, I've never seen anybody with, with with that big an ego, and that ultimately would be his downfall because of the letter writing, you know, the taunting. And we yeah, what even... finally happened to him in the final psychological analysis? Did he go nuts? Did he get arrested? Did he get run over by a truck? No, he died of uh, natural causes at age 91 no. in his penthouse suite, you know, with a at the 39th floor in downtown San Francisco. Just you know. like Jake LaMotta. <laughs> Jake LaMotta, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I remember Jake LaMotta. I know Robert De Niro played him. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, he's just. But but that's all part of it. Uh, was his of insanity? Was this? He had this need to taunt the police. You know, the letter writing. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I'm smarter. I'm the master criminal. The, I'm Moriarty. I'm all of this. You know, stuff that. Uh, and ultimately, that would be his his downfall. Was you know. But nothing happened to him. No, nothing happened to him, and uh, he's probably loving the, you know... Loving the attention he's know, getting he's, now he's that he's shovel, dead. Shoveling coal <laughs> in hell or wherever it is, and... and <laughs> shoveling coal. I don't think they, you let them use a shovel. they got to do it one thing and <laughs> one piece of coal at a time. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I, 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 I hate to think he probably is... He would probably love the notoriety, you oh, know, yeah. at this point, you know, because it goes right along with it. And a lot of people have asked me, do you think he really, did he give you some kind of clue? Do you think he really wanted you to know and, and reveal this? And I don't think so, ultimately, because one of the things he did was he ordered his wife to destroy all of his personal stuff. Huh. This is actually written out in his will. Hmm. He says, destroy all of my personal effects. Well, she made the one mistake of not destroying that album. And there's a big controversy. Some people say it's not her. You know, it is her. It isn't her. You know, half believe it is. 
And of course, at this point, it doesn't matter, even if it's not her. You know, it it, it, it doesn't matter because all that was a catalyst to get me started. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, the spark uh, for the flame. Yeah. Yeah. It must. This must have been an interesting psychological and emotional journey for you from the get-go. From I'm going to prove Daddy didn't do it to Oh my God, Daddy did it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really, I was really confident that I, I would be able to show he had nothing to do with it. You know, I know he was majorly screwed up sex-wise. You know, I, I knew that it all happened. But, you know, s murder, no way. And especially that murder, you know. And, and it was one of the reasons it was above the fold for so long was, you know, you've got these ingredients, you've got this beautiful young woman, 22, that comes out to Hollywood. And the, the, the myth is that she was lo looking to break into the film. She wasn't. She was a uh, she was looking to fall in love with Lieutenant Wright, wartime, and live happily ever after. You know, mm -hmm. that's all. She, she was a fairly simple, you know, a girl from a small, you know, Medford, Massachusetts. And, um, but then the name, you know, Black Dahlia, you know, that, that kind of whole thing. It was. Yeah, where does that come from? From the film from, Blue Dahlia. That's right. It comes from the film Blue Dahlia in 1946 in the summer. They came out with this uh, noir film, The Blue Dahlia. Or they, they, um, uh, a, a location she frequented was it a little sh a little uh, diner? Uh, well, well, and she, then they they called her that. Yeah, it was actually a pharmacy in Long Beach. Yeah, a and she'd go in there, and the military guys would call her the black the black uh, black dahlia after the blue dahlia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the newspapers. Well, the whole thing's very complex to me. <laughs> so you uh, you know, you'd think that you know, okay, you've you've got all the evidence, and this is the end of the story, but it isn't. <laughs> So what, what else did you find? Well, I mean, uh, actually, you know, we've got now, I'm up to 25 homicides. And that's from 1940 to 1970. So almost averaging one a, one a year. Hmm. A and um, I've also got, I'm, I'm currently working on the early years. He didn't wake up at age four, 39 and suddenly decide and yeah. say, I think I'll be a serial killer. So I've got the 20s and the 30s that I'm, I'm working on now that right. I'm, That'll present uh, uh, a lot, a lot more murders and stuff. Same sort of situation with Robert Lee Yates, the Spokane serial killer. Go back and take a look at his past and where he was stationed in the army. Various things like that, and you start finding stacks and stacks of yeah you know, bodies that fit. May I interject uh, before yeah. because time is running nil? Mm -hmm. um, do, were you with LAPD during the Bob Crane murder? Uh, yeah, I think was that a, was that a North Hollywood murder? Uh, it was uh, that must have been in the seventies, late seventies, and could have been North Hollywood. Not certain. yeah, I think it was. You know, back then we had each division had their own homicide unit, and then we had robbery homicide downtown that mm. would take over the major crimes like Manson and stuff. Yeah, so we just handled Hollywood. But I, yeah, I was definitely I I went to detect. I came on in sixty three, five years in uniform patrol. And then in 69, I went to detectives, and I was there until 86. Well, you seem like a competent man, and I'm glad you could spend some time with uh, Outlaw Radio's True Crime. Oh, glad to be with you. Glad to get the story out there, and, and I appreciate it. He's, well, a good, he's a good man. Yeah, thank buy all know. of his books. <laughs> That's the main thing. Buy all of his books. <laughs> yeah, Steve Hodell. Check Steve. it out. Yeah, Bro. Hodell. Howdy, howdy, Hodell. Okay. <laughs> What's next for me? Well, Magic Matt Allen, the demons have taken us live from the Light of Lounge at OutlawRadioLive.com. I'll be here. I'm going to hang around and be rude. <laughs> <laughs>